so very reassuring. And the experience of all of us who know the Lord, how many, many times the Lord has done that for us so graciously, and He will do it again, and He will do it for some today, I'm sure, who feel the desperate need of that. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John and chapter 13. We, of course, have finished the Lord's Day morning series that we were occupied with for over a year. And I'm really intending to begin a new morning series within a week or two, perhaps even as early as next week. I'm not completely confident about that, but I have uh, done a lot of preliminary study and working ahead on the first several messages of a series. I really would appreciate so much your praying with me that the Lord would confirm that if uh, we actually are supposed to go in that particular direction. But this morning, and perhaps for another week or two, I want to direct our attention to some individual texts of Scripture that are probably a particular need for us. And one of those is the passage that we're going to be looking at in just a moment. And I want to try to introduce this today with a story that I read many, many years ago, and it comes often to my mind, and it concerns someone whose name we know Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish pastor of the 17th century, most well-known for the pastoral letters that he wrote to his people when he was so persecuted by the government that they essentially imprisoned him at a great distance from his small parish, his small church located in Anwath in the southwest of Scotland. And this story concerns Samuel Rutherford, out of whose letters the wonderful texts were taken for the hymn that we enjoy, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It concerns him and his wife and a stranger to them. The stranger's name, probably a stranger to most of us, was James Usher. James Usher was actually a Protestant minister from Ireland Uh, He was the leading Protestant minister of that day in Ireland. He had been in England. These are in the days of the English Civil War, the 1640s, and he was on his way back to Ireland. And though it was greatly out of his way, he had heard such wonderful things about the ministry of Samuel Rutherford that he wanted to take a detour, an extra time, And he wanted to attend services there in that little building where Rutherford preached. Many of you have been in that building. He decided, however, that he did not want Rutherford to know who he was. And so before arriving, he deliberately dressed very shabbily. And then he knocked at their door. And according to the custom of the day, of course, when a stranger did that, they let him in and they offered him accommodation for the night. After the meal, Mrs. Rutherford was accustomed to getting the few household servants and any others that might be their visitors together and having a short time of catechizing. And she did this so that her husband could slip away and continue his preparations for the Lord's Day good pastor's wife there. And so she gets the group together, and here's this stranger. And in the midst of this, she decides that she ought to ask him a question. So she gives him a simple one. How many commandments are there? And he replied, 11. And she was shocked, but did not express it But that night, after everyone had retired, she told Samuel that she was very concerned about this visitor, that he was so abysmally ignorant of spiritual things that he didn't even know that there are ten commandments. Well, the next morning, Rutherford was up 
early as usual on the Lord's Day. And there was a small wooded area there to which he would go and pray before the services. But when he arrived, he discovered that the visitor was already there and was praying out loud. And Rutherford did not disturb him. He just listened and very quickly was astonished at the depth of the prayer and the fervency of the Spirit. And he realized that this visitor was not the person that he was representing himself to be. But Rutherford, of course, still did not know who he was. And when the prayer was over, Rutherford spoke to him and basically said to him, you know, you need to let us know who you really are. And it was at that point that Archbishop Usher revealed his identity. And Rutherford was so thankful for his presence, he asked him to preach that morning. And though uh, Usher was not a Presbyterian, was a Protestant, but not a Presbyterian, he agreed to preach and he took what we're going to read this morning as his text. If you would look with me, please, at verse 34. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And when he had finished, Rutherford whispered to his wife, there's the 11th commandment. It's a wonderful story. I think once you hear it, it sticks with you. And it does remind you often of this passage. We need to read now the entirety of the context. So would you begin with me, please, with verse 31. This is the night before the crucifixion, and the Lord has exposed Judas and sent him away. Verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately, which was a reference, of course, to what God was going to do in Christ the next day on the cross. It would be for the glorification of God and the glorification of Christ to save us in this way. The disciples, of course, understood little or nothing of that at that moment. And now the Lord addresses them so tenderly. It's the only time in his earthly ministry when he addressed them this way the night before he's to leave, the night before his crucifixion, the night in which they will all desert him, little children. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I want primarily this morning to call our attention to verses 34 and 35, and they are, of course, a natural outgrowth of the series which we have just finished on keeping ourselves in the love of God. But now what we're turning to is this outgrowth of loving one another. 
And this has to do, of course, with one of our great desires for the year. We've established a goal that we would increase this year in our love and in our joy and in our peace. I want to preach to you on the new commandment given us with regard to the first of those, increasing in our love. What we see here is our commanded relationship to one another. That is the first point in the message this morning. This commandment concerns our relationship to one another. And the Lord identifies it to be this matter of love. And I want to try to clear a little ground in what I'm going to say next. There is a considerable concern today in evangelical churches about the testimony of Christians before the world, that is, before lost people. And there is a great surge today of urging that Christian people become involved in attempting to show the love of Christ to the world in tangible ways primarily through addressing the needs of society. And this, of course, is truly a necessary way of displaying the love of Christ. The Scripture says, "To much as lieth within you, do good to all men. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the great missionary agency to inland China, called attention on one occasion to the fact that the Lord spent a great deal of time and strength on material and temporal necessities of the people who would gather around him, giving blessing to the poor and the afflicted and the needy. And Hudson Taylor said, such ministrations proceeding from right motives cannot be lost. He means it's not lost time and it's not lost effort. They are godlike and they are Christ-like, and that is true. There can be an overemphasis upon that. There was in the last century, it was called the social gospel. There are many conservative theologians and pastors, Christian leaders and Christians today, who are very concerned that evangelicalism not slip back into that kind of great mistake. <clears throat> but having said all that, it is a necessity. But what I'm telling, what, I, what I'm saying that for this morning is in order to point out that isn't what this text is talking about. This talk, text is talking about our loving one another. This commandment has to do with our relationship to each other as Christian brothers and sisters. I don't mean by that, of course, just to each other in this church, but the relationship of genuine Christians to one another. Now I want to ask you a question. Why does the Lord call this commandment new? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Why does the Lord call it new? We need to realize, folks, that he's not doing that, for instance, because it had never been taught in the Old Testament. It is taught in the Old Testament that God's people are to love one another and that they are to love lost people as well. The Lord Jesus, when he was asked what the first and great commandment is, answered in terms of the Scripture itself, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart and soul and strength. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And when he said that, he was quoting Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Taught in the Old Testament law. This is not a new commandment because this kind of love 
even simply for our neighbors, wasn't taught in the Old Testament. It was. And he's not calling this, folks, a new commandment because he himself hadn't taught it before. He had taught it before. And when we open the Gospel of Matthew and we're given the first great example of the kind of sermons that Jesus was preaching, you have embedded in that sermon, which is three chapters long in Matthew. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we call it the Sermon what? Sermon on the Mount, because the Lord gave it on a mountainside. And embedded in that, toward the end of the fifth chapter, the Lord says this. He says, you are to love your enemies, and you are to bless them that curse you, and to do good to them who hate you, and to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven, because he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and gives his reign to the unjust and the just. In other words, God the Father does good to all people, does much of it indiscriminately, even people who have no thought of him, people who are godless, who take his name in vain, who reject him, and yet he displays this great kindness to them. Be like your father. That was the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. My point is this, he's not calling this a new commandment because it had never been taught before, either in the Old Testament or in his own teaching. It had been taught. Why then does he call this a new commandment? And the best answer to that is because of the way he qualifies it. Let's read it again. A new commandment I give to you. Lord, what makes it new? This, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The thing that makes it new is the standard. As I have loved you. These men now had been with the Lord for up to three years. Now, after all those years, he's in a position to be able to say to them, essentially, you know how I've loved you. Apart from those three years, he could not have said, as I've loved you. But he can now. And it is that that gives this newness to this commanded relationship between those who know him as I have loved you. And what Jesus Christ is going to do the next day, these men will come to understand as all truly Christian people come to understand, they will come to understand that what he will do the next day is the supreme example of the love of God for people. The supreme, I should say, evidence or display of that love. And it was just last Lord's Day morning that we noted the way this is said to us and taught to us in the fifth chapter of Romans. God recommends His love toward us. Someone says, where's the love of God? Look at the problems in the world. How could God allow such and such? People who don't know the Lord and they don't know the Word of God, their minds have not been shaped by the Word of God, their mouths are constantly filled with why. If there is a God and if He's, as we've heard that He is a God of love, why? And God's response to that is, God or I recommend my love to you in this. In that while you were yet sinners, godless, blasphemous sinners, I sent my son to die for you in your sins. 
That is the ultimate evidence of the love of God for us and the love of Jesus Christ for us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for it in this fashion. Now that is what the disciples the next day are going to be confronted with, though they don't understand it at that point, but they will come to understand. And we understand that. And here then is this commanded relationship between ourselves in a local church like this, as well as on our responses to Christian brothers and sisters who may come into these services, and we've never met them before, or those whom we may encounter when we travel, this is a new commandment in the sense of the standard now for our loving each other as Christ has loved every single one of us. That we love one another sacrificially. Now would you notice with me please secondly that our Lord urges this, verse 35, because this will be the unmistakable evidence of our being His disciples. If you know the Lord this morning, you regard yourself as His follower, as His disciple. I've pointed out numbers of times in the past that a disciple is someone who learns in a particular way. For many, many, many years, I taught classes at Bob Jones University. Had thousands of students go through those classes. Some of you are instructors there. But actually very few of those students would have ever called themselves or viewed themselves, and I certainly would not have viewed them as my disciples. Because a disciple is not someone who's merely learning by listening to lectures. That is a reasonable way to learn, but that is not a disciple and disciple-making relationship. A disciple, folks, is someone who essentially is being coached by the instructor. A disciple is a learner by following. It's like a sports team. And you can have coaches for various player positions. And they have many, many meetings. And they watch tape and they talk about the position. But whatever, whatever, you know, every really aspiring player wants is a coach who has really excelled himself. And when they get out on the field, this man is actually displaying how to do that. The stance, the posture of your arms, the shuffling of your feet, and they become his disciples. He's coaching and their disciples. Now what the Lord says here has that as its reflected background, both scripturally and in secular life. Folks, how in, what is our own perception of how it is that we display that we are Christ's disciples? Not just, not merely believing people, but discipled people. How is it that we display that? Well, it isn't primarily by our Bible knowledge. That is very important. The Scripture itself places a high premium on that. We attempt to do that here at the church. But it isn't the primary way that we show that we are discipled people. We may be knowledgeable people, but are we discipled people? It isn't primarily by the fact that we make use of our gifts 
or our rigid separation from the world, which it ought to be rigid. We're dealing with that in our evening services, and it'll become clearer and clearer as we deal with these passages that the Bible is absolutely uncompromising on that point. But that isn't the primary way we show we've been discipled by Christ. What he's saying here is, as I have loved you. And what the scripture presents us with is this, that there is simply nothing that is so characteristic of Jesus Christ as this. Or of God. God is this. He is love. And Christ is love. And those discipled by Christ are truly love. In that 17th century, of course, that was the era of the tremendous, tremendous conflict between the Puritans and the existing Church of England and between the Covenanters in Scotland and the government there. And there were many, many notable figures in addition to Samuel Rutherford and James Usher. Another one of them, of whom some of you have read, is Richard Baxter. Baxter was known as a real fighter. He was a militant man. And as a result of that, he, even among believing people, he had a lot of people who were kind of turned off by him. Not everything he said was right, but most of it was scriptural. And Baxter made a shocking statement. When you first read it, you do a double take. Baxter said that he would just as soon be a martyr for love as for any doctrine in the creed. Almost sounds like he's totally off base. He would just as soon die for love as for any article, any doctrine, scriptural doctrine of the creed. I want to put that out there for us to think about this morning when we, when we keep considering this matter of this being the genuine evidence that it isn't just that we're well taught and that we believe all the right things, but we've been discipled by Jesus Christ. Let me ask these follow-up questions. What would you say of a man who does not believe in the deity of Christ? Is he a Christian or not? You don't need to be silent on that one. What would you say of a man who denies the deity of Christ? Is he a Christian or not? He's not. It's a sad, tragic thing to have to say right here in this city as I'm standing in this pulpit. Within a few miles of this pulpit are churches and other men standing in pulpits and they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They believe he was a fine man and a great example and that he may have been a better example than any of us have ever been, but they do not believe he's fully God. What do you say of somebody like that? Jesus Christ himself said they're going to die in their sins. They're lost. Those preachers are lost. They don't know Christ and they don't know God the Father because they don't know Christ. And he's the only one to bring them to God the Father. Folks, what would you say of someone who does not believe in the blood atonement? He doesn't believe that the only way that our sins are atoned for is by the shedding of the blood, not our own blood, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. Is that person a Christian or not? No, he's not. The Bible's very clear on that point. What would you say of a man who doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? What would you say of a preacher, and they're going to do it again here in another month or so, they're going to stand in their pulpits and explain to their people right here in this town and in nearly every major city, probably I could say every major city in this country, they're going to stand in their pulpits and they're going to explain the resurrection in another way. Because they don't believe that Jesus' literal body rose from the grave. What do you say of somebody like, is that a Christian or not? 
No, the Bible says you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's your heart. And if with your mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. You have to believe in the resurrection. The Bible is uncompromising on that point. All right, let me ask you this point. What would you say of a man who does not truly love the brethren? Is he a Christian or not? Baxter said that's just as important. Well, let me ask you to turn with me to some passages of Scripture. I want to go through four in sequence, and you'll see that there is a, is a deliberate order in which we're looking at these. Would you go to me, with me, please, to the book of 1 John? 1 John in the fourth chapter. And read with me, please, verses 7 and 8. Now, I should point out that this little section from verse 7 down through verse 21 is the passage of Scripture in the Bible that speaks of love more often than any other passage in the 1,189 chapters of your Bible. I've got it shaded in green every time it occurs, and I'm looking at the section of my Bible, and all the green just pops off the page. And right at the heart of it is actually what it says at the beginning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. That's talking about being born again, the new birth. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Just doesn't know him. Now, if you would look with me, please, at a second verse, which probably is right across the page in your Bible. It's chapter 3 and verse 10. There is a little bit of a test, then, that is given here. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That is quite a striking statement. In other words, there's no mistaking this. This is obvious. There's not even any point in debating or arguing about it. It's like everybody would know this. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That doesn't mean that Christian people don't sin, but it's talking about the general character of their lives. Their general character is that of not practicing sin like they did before they were born again and knew God through Christ. And in addition to that, anyone who does not love his brother is not of God. How clear that is, folks. And that's why I'm distinguishing here. How do we show that we are his disciples? We think immediately of, well, I'm saved, and I know I'm his disciple because I'm an avid student of the Bible. I love to read theology. I love those stories that pastor tells about saints of the past, hymn writers, and the martyrs, and the Puritans, and the reformers, and the missionaries. I mean, I, you know, my heart is really for all, wonderful. It ought, that's how we ought to feel. But what the Lord set forth in terms of everyone around, especially the world, being able to see we were discipled by Christ or in a Christ-like way. And it's this. And if someone doesn't have this, he's no Christian. Baxter, again, I would as soon be a martyr for love as any article of the creed. He's not separating them. He's not saying you can have one without the other. The Bible itself says you can't have one without the other. You've got to believe the right things, 
And this passage is also saying you have to love the brethren, not in order to be saved, but if you want the assurance that you have been born of God. Look at the verses, that's what those verses are saying. If you've been born of God, it shows itself this way. In that kind of love for one another. And you know, folks, this is so much the case. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages more, and we're going to work our way back. Would you go to 1 Thessalonians with me? And the fourth chapter, where Paul is writing to this church, which is a fairly new church. You remember that he was just there about three weeks. This church was planted, then Paul was run out of Thessalonica, was persecuted. And when he wrote this letter back to them, he could say something really remarkable in the ninth verse. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9. Take a look at this. Now as to the love, love of the brethren, okay, this is talking again about our love for one another, not our love for lost people. Concerning your love for the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Why not? Because, because that, what he's going to say here, folks, is true of all Christian people. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's true of every genuine believer. Why? He's indwelt of the Spirit of God, and the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the very first aspect of it? The fruit of the Spirit is, is this. This is what the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of those who have been born of God, born of the Spirit. What he says there is true of all churches. But if you look at the next verse... Indeed, you do practice it. That isn't necessarily true as it ought to be. If there's no practice of it, those are no Christians. But Paul can say something of this church that obviously the Lord himself would not be able to say with the same degree of confidence and universality of expression that it was said of the Thessalonican church, indeed you practice it toward all the brethren who are still in Macedonia. And one more reference, you'll have to turn back the other way now. Go to 2 Thessalonians, the second letter that he writes to them, and look at what he can say to them as he opens this book. 2 Thessalonians 1, and look at the third verse. Paul writes, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it's only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. That's what he was calling for in the first book, and in the second book, he can actually praise them because it's happening. That church, has respond, that church had responded that way. Now, let me just pause. When this message is over this morning, we ought to respond this way. Okay, we need to really move this from thinking, from hearing, to determining and saying, yes, that will be true of me. I am taught of God about this. It wasn't just pastor this morning haranguing us, I'm taught of God and I am going to increase in this. And that goal that we have for 2024, we're going to increase in love. That is a biblical goal. And, and I am committed to that personally. I want that to be the case in my life. And you know, folks, we can be so blind to ourselves about it, can't we? Even when we're considering something like this, we're reading about it and we're hearing preaching about it, we can actually be thinking or listening. You can be sitting here this morning while this is being preached and your, your thinking may be totally flipped. What you may be sitting here thinking about is all the ways that the brethren have failed you. They ought to be loving me. That's just backwards. What a selfish bunch of people we are. The Lord's talking about the opposite. He's talking about you think about 
how you ought to be loving them. That's where the emphasis is. And we are blind to ourselves about this. Amy Carmichael, so splendidly used of the Lord in India in rescuing young girls from the terrible trafficking in human beings in Hinduism. It's an awful thing. Amy Carmichael went out to the field very naively as a young Christian woman, zealous and full of desire, idealistic. Her first attempt at missions was actually in Japan. And she hadn't been there long before she was very distressed by the older missionaries. One day she's out walking, long walk on the beach with one of the older women who was there. She's pouring out her heart. And the woman just stops the conversation and says, you don't don't mean to be saying that all of the missionaries should really love one another, are you? And, you know, she wasn't saying it facetiously like you might say it to to get to a point. It was like the older person was kind of flabbergasted. But that is exactly what Amy Carmichael did think, that they would actually really love each other on that field. And of course, it's exactly what the Lord thinks. We probably all heard those lines that really put our failure into such light. To live above with saints we love, or that will soon be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story. And we all identify with that. But that's what we're called to. Love with loving each other now. In the way that Christ loves us and would be demonstrating love for us if he was a member of this church. And of course, the outstanding scriptural explanation of this, and it really is more of explanation than definition, is in a passage I think that we ought to read again this morning carefully. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to read through this, and I want to briefly exposit it as we go along. And the exposition will be entirely in keeping with what we have discovered in this passage and that we've gone through numbers of times over the years here. Beginning in verse 4, you have first of all, love's two-sided response. And it is a response to certain things. Let's read. On the one hand, Love is patient. That's the word for long-suffering. It puts up with. It suffers long with. And the flip side is it isn't just passive like that, long-suffering, but it is active in terms of being kind and generous to people. That, folks, is the two-sided initial response that God gives to us here. You have to stop and think about the significance of that. When we think about our loving other people or when someone preaches to you like I'm doing this morning, we immediately begin to think of our affections. We think of the warmth. We think, yeah, you know, that's right. I really ought to have, I I really ought to have more warmth toward these people. I have to, and, and we think, but how, you know, how do I really stir up my heart about that? What we're reading about here is that is not what's being called for. That'll come, but that isn't what this is calling for. What's really remarkable here is that this passage is confronting us initially not with people in their need, but with people and their annoyance. They annoy me. Their behavior makes me suffer. We'd say, it bugs me. Yes, and love puts up with that. It suffers long. 
But it doesn't just have this martyr complex, like I'm not going to respond to that. I love her too much to respond to that. No, it, the, the other side of it is, in return, it's kind. That is the initial two-sided response to saints below whom we know so well. And we suffer long and we are kind to the Lord's people like that. And then what you have here are what you could call five self-denials. And I think you'll see why you can label these five that way. Let's read them. Love is not jealous or envious. It doesn't brag. In other words, it's not boastful. Someone has said it makes no parade of itself. It doesn't call attention to itself. It doesn't crusade its own superiority. It's not self-promoting. It doesn't do that. It's not arrogant, proud of itself. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It's talking, folks, about being ill-mannered, discourteous. There is a certain Christian courtesy that is a matter of love. There are so many illustrations of this. They probably leap into your mind as well. You know, here would be a good illustration. There's a wedding. Somebody has a wedding. I'm just thinking of this one off the cuff. All right, there's an appropriate behavior that you have as a guest. There's appropriate attire. When somebody just says, uh, you know, I'm just going to come like I am because this is who I am. They're going to have to take me like I am or not take me. That's not love. Who are you thinking about? There's an appropriate etiquette. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. It is appropriate. It's part of consideration for other people. And this passage goes on and says it doesn't seek its own. It isn't always thinking about its own rights and interests. A couple of weeks ago I was eating supper by myself and I thought, well, I just want to watch something or listen to something while I'm eating supper. And so I found this, I found this talk that Elizabeth Elliot gave to thousands of women back in the 1990s. She was in her mid-60s at the time, or maybe it was the early 2000s, I forget. But And it was entitled something like uh, Making Yourself Small. And the point of it was that a godly woman is a woman who actually does not try to be assertive, but she, she really wants to be a servant, and in her own eyes, she's small. And in the midst of that, Elizabeth Elliot said some shocking things. I didn't know this. She said, you know, ladies, let's admit it. We are manipulating. We are conniving. We are scheming. We are always thinking about ourselves. We don't want anybody intruding into our space. I'm this way. You're this way. We might as well admit it. I'm thinking, really, is that the way women are? (laughs) Amazing. I just about had indigestion eating my supper. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm trying to make a point here that someone like that well known for her sacrificial life for Christ would be acknowledging in front of thousands of people I've got this in my heart too I'm self-seeking it's no good the Lord would want us to make ourselves the small person not the big person in this It was wonderful. And then, folks, the next three descriptions that you have here are just outright refusals. Those first five 
that we noted, not jealous, doesn't brag, not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly, doesn't seek its own. You know, all of those are essentially my reigning myself in and ruling over myself by the grace of God. But now these next three, these are all situations in which other people essentially are, you know, we would say they're rattling my cage. And in those situations, love is not provoked. The word means exasperated. It's a good illustration of that is when James and John came to the Lord with their mother and said, hey, we want the two chief seats in the kingdom. And the Bible records how the other ten responded to that. That provoked them. You know, what's obvious there, folks, it isn't just that James and John wanted the two chief seats. Who wanted them? Everybody wanted them, but it's just you only had two guys brash enough to get their mother and go crusading for them. (laughs) But the other guys all felt the same way. And as a result of that, then the ten are provoked. Really by the very self-seeking behavior, by the lack of love on the part of James and John. Love doesn't do that. Boy, do we need to be discipled in that. And it goes on and says here that in addition to that, it doesn't take into account a wrong, an evil suffered. And this literally is a businessman's term. Some of you are accountants. This is an accountant's term for entering something in a ledger. And the idea here is that you're calculating the injury and the debt to be paid. Love doesn't do that. It's very aware that it's been injured. It may be very aware of what the loss has been. But it, you know, it just doesn't record that and keep that in mind every time that it crosses paths with that other person. I want to ask you, as a Christ, has, there, has a Christian brother or sister ever lost his temper with you? Has another Christian ever glared at you or disregarded your opinion or criticized you or misjudged you or laughed at you or failed to love you? Of course. Of course. They shouldn't. Truth be told, they probably didn't want to. They may not even been aware they did it. Did you record that? We got that in mind. It's no good. It's not love. And unfortunately today and our whole, our whole society is sick with this matter of nursing grievance and nursing victimization. And churches today and Christian schools and theological institutions are filling up with people nursing their hurts. Folks, everybody's been sinned against. Everybody's got their story. Everybody could go on Oprah Winfrey and pour it all out or get on Facebook and find 15 other people that will affirm us because they've had the same experience and the more all 16 of us talk about it, the bigger and bigger it gets, like chewing, chewing something. The more you chew it, the bigger it gets. And in a little while, it's going to choke you. Get released from that by love. Love frees. Love doesn't keep an account of all those things. And it doesn't rejoice, verse 6, in people's unrighteousness. It doesn't have any secret glee when some hidden weakness was finally discovered in someone, particularly if they've been a big nuisance to us. It really is never glad when unrighteousness is done or discovered. Instead, you have these four wonderful universals. All of them have the word all connected with them. Look at them. 
verse 7, it bears all things. The word here literally means, you can see it in the margin of your Bible, it means to cover. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. And we don't understand that to mean that you just sweep things under the carpet that really have to be dealt with. No. But when it comes to personal wrong done to me, love covers all of that and covers it in an assembly like this. It covers those things. And it accepts people's word for things. It believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean it's naive. It doesn't mean that we're just taken in. But it does mean that we place, you know, in, that we, that I, I guess the best way to put it is we actually, we're not suspicious people. With brothers and sisters, we're not suspicious. When they say something, we say, okay, well, he said such, so that must be it. And if it turns out that it was wrong, then we have to be really convinced by hard facts because our love for that brethren is just, just like your love for your family. You, you take them at their word. And it's optimistic about the possibilities. Believes all things and it hopes all things. In other words, it's expectant. It places the best construction on the things that it doesn't understand. It cherishes good expectations of people. It credits them with good intentions. And again, folks, how far short we all fall of these things. But this is the standard. And this is how we display that we've been discipled by God's Word. And that Christ truly is the one we follow. And lastly, it endures all hardships. It endures all things, primarily on behalf of other people as you can see here. Now, I never preach on this. I I have to just be completely candid with you this morning. I think nearly every pastor or Bible teacher or Sunday school teacher would say the same thing. There are some topics, and when they come to your mind, your initial response is, uh, because you yourself fall so far short. It is so convicting. And when you've been in a ministry, as long as I've been in a ministry here, I'm looking out at hundreds of people, and if you're not aware of it, I can think of hundreds of times that I have failed you and failed you individually. It's one of the greatest griefs that I think a minister has. And if you folks had not been all of these years patient and forbearing and forgiving and in very many ways examples of this, you know, what <laughs> would be great loss. But that's not to say that we don't have a lot of room for improvement. I do and probably you do as well. And the way this works, folks is that we're told in the Bible that our love is not to be merely in word, it is to be in deed, in deeds, deeds of loving kindness. And deeds are always the results of decisions. And I'm ending the sermon by pointing that out this morning in order to help us and give us some hope we can all love more and better by making the decisions to do the deeds. The deeds are always the result of deliberate decisions. So in a church like ours, just think of all of the opportunity that is there every time we gather. We make deliberate decisions as to whether or not to stay around a little bit and talk to people. And not just, you know, chit-chat like, what do you think of the weather today? But really to get to know people and get to the place where there's a little bit of a relationship there and we can say genuinely to them and they don't feel uncomfortable responding, you know, say something I can pray for you about today or I noticed you had such and such a request on the prayer request sheet. I want you to know that came to my heart this last week, and I want to pray with you about that. 
you can make a deliberate decision, folks. I'm, you know, think of it like this in this building. People say, we don't even know the people on the other side of the church. We always sit over here. Great. How about if you all just switch sides? <laughs> that won't exactly work either because then all of you are over here. But look, after service, instead of talking with the same folks there, you could, a lot of you, go over here and meet some people. You know, you know who they are, but a little bit of talk, a little bit of fellowship before and after services. We have a lot of older people in our church. It's wonderful when the younger people sit down by them and just talk with them and engage them. You know, I could put it on this, folks, this level, folks. Coming to prayer meeting is probably the best avenue that we have for getting to know one another in our church. Because we, we hand out a sheet every Wednesday night with people's urgencies. And that sheet pretty much changes every week. That's really how we get to know the needs that people have and pray with them about it and then sometimes then respond in very tangible ways. If you don't come to prayer meeting, you will feel disconnected. I can almost, almost dogmatically say that of probably with 100% certainty. And just coming to prayer meeting doesn't mean that you'll feel connected. You have, you know, we have to make decisions to follow up with things like that. But that is what love would do. You know that's the case. You hardly need me to say that to you, but you, you know that is the case. We have to show the love that will get close enough to each other to find out some things about each other. And then Ephesians 5 says that what happens is we get bonded together in love. And our church, I'm not just saying this to try in any way to take the edge off the sword this morning, but our church very thankfully seems in general to be known both inside and out our church for having a genuine caring spirit. And by God's grace, let's increase this year by making the right kind of decisions. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me about it? Would you pray about, not just as a church, but yourself individually? Loving Lord, what you have done for us through your Son is inestimable. We do love you for it. And Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, we love you. Grant the conviction of your Spirit this morning and grant vision and inspiration to us and help us to increase in this matter toward one another. And grant that we would make decision after decision this very day that are decisions that are selfless and giving of ourselves. And gracious Lord, we thank you that we're not left to ourselves in this, but that your Holy Spirit inspires this and enables us in many cases beyond our own time and talents and energies to be able to reach out and do this. We pray that you would hear our prayer this morning and see that our hearts are surrendered on this point and grant to us the encouragement of some immediate growth in grace. And we will praise you in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen? 219 in our hymn book. Blessed be the tie that binds. We're going to let our instruments play with us for the first stanza. And the last stanza, we're going to sing the middle four without the instruments and really reflect on this wording. Shall we stand together?
okay, we have an opportunity. Let's show a little love to one another. We're dismissed.